To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. Because history has shown us that courage can be contagious, and hope can take on a life of its own. I will bring you hope, and I ask only one thing in return. We move now, together. Not at all. Hope is not lost today. It is found. Hope is what keeps you going. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye, and say no. You move. Welcome to Skippy and Fanny Show. I'm Paul Weimer, and today on Sigma Boost, we have Claire O'Dell here to talk about A Study in Honor. Say hello, Claire. Hi. A Study in Honor is your first novel. It's a new take on Sherlock Holmes. So why don't you tell us the elevator pitch for A Study in Honor? Well, this is Watson and Holmes, but set in the near future in the U.S. with the, with um, a new civil war. And by the way, Watson and Holmes are two black queer women. That's new and different. That's, I mean, we've, we've seen Sherlock Holmes of every kind from straight up to data to AIs. But yeah, two queer black women, that's, that's new. It just seemed like the right way to do it. I wanted to make it unapologetically U.S. based and I grew up near Washington, D.C. So it seemed that as that would be a place for Watson to come home to. And it just turned and she grew up in the suburbs um, in Suitland, Maryland, in um, it, her family was not well to do. And I wanted to explore with the new civil war issues of race and gender and uh, politics and, the, uh, you know, what would the middle of the 21st century be like um, given current day events and you do that expertly um you started this book a number of years ago before the present administration i understand yes i started it in 2014 and actually i had set it earlier in time and well i actually had hillary as the president um and the editor said you know we've (laughs) We're going to need to change that. And so he's, and they suggested setting it further in the future so that it would be less, it's, it's influenced by today's events, but it's not tied as closely to them. But it's kind of, it's kind of scary that even then I thought a new civil war was not likely, not likely, but it was plausible. You, 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 you saw through the, the scanner clearly instead of darkly, it seems, given how politics has shifted in, since when you first started writing this book and now when it's were, uh, at its release. I, I, uh, I wish I hadn't, but I, I do actually find it's, as I said, I had to rework some of the backstory and some of the references, but I really wish it hadn't been that close. No, indeed. But this, this novel, so before listeners think that this is just a political tract, is much more than that. So why don't we talk about uh, Janet? Oh, Janet. I, I, I love Janet to pieces. Um, and my husband is tired of hearing me say that. I started writing this, as I said, I picked Watson and Holmes, but I always wanted to give 
Watson, you know, equal time with Holmes. I wanted her to be her own person with her own agenda and her own backstory. And instead of just being an accessory. So it's all about diving deep into her. And, you know, she comes home from the war. Um, she's lost her arm. Her parents have been killed. Her uh, fiance has abandoned her for another. And she's she's got PTSD and she's she's disabled and she has a device, a prosthetic device that isn't well suited to her. And she's trying to put her life back together, even while she's going through a lot of emotional trauma. And just writing about her, I, I started writing and I couldn't stop. Her, her story is compelling. We're, we're brought into the immediacy of her being a walking wounded after a very bad battle in, I believe it was Illinois, that uh, that sent, that's, that's sent her back to D.C. And she, so, so there she, by, by the usual uh, friend of a friend sort of thing, she encounters Sarah Holmes. Yes, I, I, I very vastly enjoyed writing the scene where they first meet. And it's at that point, I, I mean, I wanted to echo the original scene where Watson meets Holmes, but I wanted it to make it Janet and Sarah's. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you take the, the Holmes-Watson relationship and you change it in other ways as well, not, o- not only of, of gender and sexu- sexuality and race, but also of class. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Well, um, Janet was born on a, a very poor farm in Georgia and her parents wanted to make, you know, go, they moved up north with their two daughters and Janet had to work very, very hard to get scholarships, to get into college, to get into medical school, to become a respected surgeon. Um, but she always remembers, you know, where she came from. And when she comes back from the war, she no longer has a job and she she's sort of thrown back several steps. It's like she slid back down the the, the incline and she has to cl- climb her way, cr- scrabble and crawl her way back up. And she's very stubborn, so she can do it. But it's not easy. And Sarah, Sarah comes from a rich family. And I wanted to also explore the dynamics of of, you know, it's not as you said, it's not just gender and sexuality and race. It's 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 class as well. And so, so, so Sarah is much more affluent. She, she, she lives and works in a very different world. And I recall a scene where Jan is just like very confused by, by the people in Sarah's orbit that being so alien to her. And so it gives that little bit of distancing effect that Holmes has in any sort of incarnation because he's generally not your, not, not your point of view character. So we have to see Holmes from the outside. And here we have Janet seeing or, uh, well, she has so much in common with Holmes. She has 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 these these uh, vast gulfs between them. Yes, that that was deliberately set up. So aside from aside from the tight and strong relationship between Holmes and Watson, which runs through the novel, I mean, it is of course a Sherlock Holmes mystery. So why don't you tell us a little bit of, without trying to spoil too much, how you take a a mystery plot and put it in the near future without it becoming a case of, oh, I lost my cell phone, so there has to be a problem. Oh, well, there's always going to be problems, even with cell phones. But this was, it, it was, it was interesting trying to build up the, the mystery because it starts off, um, seemingly unconnected to the current story. 
But then you, as you go on, you see it and it's caused by politics. It's caused by greed. It's caused by, um, people just running roughshod over anything for ambition. Um, and it leaves people in the wake dead, dying, or their arm, you know, amputated and, and they're discharged from the war. That you, you do really bring home the, the costs of this continually, continuing ulcer of a civil war that we have in America, especially with, with Janet's uh, time at the VA, working there and dealing with people who have, uh, have suffered just as she has. And that gives a real uh, punch in the gut as far as this is not a war which we just watch on televisions and can forget about. This is a war here and now. And I really think that the immediacy of that war is something that really comes across the page. Yes, yes. I'm, th- I'm glad it did because it was important that the war not be just a backdrop, something that, w- that was people could forget about. One of the things that happens in the original Holmes is um, Watson comes home. He's been wounded in Afghanistan, but it doesn't affect the story in any way. And again, making Watson the center character, central character, um, I needed to show her experiences, what she went through, not and not just have it as, oh, well, she's discharged now. Yeah, I, I mean, this this is one of the the few story Sherlock Holmes takes where which actually does actually explore the the consequences of Holmes' time in the war in a character and plot based thing rather than just being a tiki box. Oh yes, Holmes is a doctor was a doctor in a war check and it never ever really becomes relevant to who and what they are. I mean uh, I'm trying to think of another Holmes another Watson which is actually physically as well as mentally traumatized if you put it here and then I'm not coming up with one off the top of my head. So that's an interesting way to reground Watson and make Watson more than just a, a mirror to see show how brilliant Holmes is. Yes, and and frankly, I also wanted my Watson to be pretty smart. She's smart in her own way. She's you know a very talented, very dedicated surgeon, um, and she's she's not just. I've been re- I had been rereading the uh, the Watson Holmes books and and Watson always seems to say oh sure I can leave my practice in so and so's hands and go jaunting off with you and that's not something Janet would do. No, there's actual attention in the book where she has responsibilities and trying to make a living and not just want to live in live in off of uh, Holmes's generosity and she has uh, she can't be so. Um, cavalier with her own life because she's come from that hard scrabble existence exactly and that's going to carry through into the next book as well oh there's going to be a next book oh yeah yeah i just turned it in so does this one have a title there is a tentative title which might change but so right now it's called the hound of justice aha so continuing on with the uh, allusions to previous Sherlock Holmes titles yes yes and 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 Sarah is a hound of justice. That's a very good way of putting her. Given given her, um, I don't want to spoil. Uh, give, given her real job, as it were, quote unquote, real job in in the story. That makes a lot of sense. Yes, and 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 it will. It is especially relevant to the second book, which I can't talk about, and I want to. 
I understand. I mean, we'll have to have you come back and tell us about how you write a second book and, and the ascending questions about, yeah, first book versus second book, but that's outside the scope of this narrative. So, so let's, let's, let's move towards more of a concluding thoughts and ideas about the book. Um, so what, let's talk a little bit about the, um, the world building. So we talked about the Civil War. We talked about how politics change. How did you evolve the technology in the book? Ah, um, I didn't do a lot because from Janet's perspective, she's, you know, the, there's very, obviously it's, um, technology has moved to more people are using smaller tablets or phones instead of laptops. Um, but Sarah, Sarah being rich and being, having the job she has, um, she has implants that connect her directly to um, the info feeds, um, that, and she uses that as part of her work. Yeah, when I was reading it, I was thinking, okay, this is like the show Sherlock, except years in the future and much more magnified. She's She gets the fire hose of data and information in a way that, yeah, not even Benedict uh, Cumberbatch's Sherlock can man- quite manage. Yes, and it takes some skill on her part to be able to to filter all of this out. I was actually thinking of part of the time when I was thinking of it was um, there's a a section in one of the the forecasting of books where um, Mark is noticing that his brother Miles, the main character, can listen to the command set that all of the different feeds coming in and sort through them with seemingly no effort. And that's what I wanted to do there. Ah, you're a Bujols fan. I might have known. Yes, I am. The, the, the connection to the importance of characters and technology and the consequences of technology and social social questions are something that really run through this book. Yep. Now, now, now that makes sense. That You're definitely writing in a Bujoldian tradition, if that makes sense. That, 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 thank you very much. I take that as a high compliment. It's definitely meant to be one. So, so listeners, if you if you want a near future Sherlock Holmes with two queer persons of color, women in a Bujolzian sort of matrix, a setting in honor is the book for you. So one one last one, one last fun question. So what is your fa- aside from your own? What is your favorite Sherlock Holmes adaptation? I have deliberately kept away from both Elementary and the BBC series because I didn't want to accidentally get influenced. But I've heard so many good things about Elementary that that's on my near in the near future. I want to watch it. I'm going to binge watch that. That makes sense. How about how about any older stories or adaptations? I, I really, I really like the, the. It was a short story, but Neil Gaiman did what was it? A study in Emerald. Ah, yes, that's a classic. That's a. That's just a gorgeous. Well, I mean, it's Gaiman, so it's it's just a gorgeously written story that just combines the two, just utterly seamlessly. And I don't want to spoil for listeners what the what the um, revelation in that story is because it's so delightful, and you go, oh, I mean, your book is in a relatively uncommon sort of take on uh, to encourage all listeners to uh, pick it up and read it. By the time of this recording, it should be all uh, now in all good bookstores, so I encourage readers to go for it. So anything else you want to tell our listeners before we let you go? Uh, no, I think that's about it. 
Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much, Claire. And the, the book, once again, is A Sunny Narno by Claire O'Dell. And that's it for now, listeners. Stay frosty and see. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanty Show. I'm Becca, and today on Signal Boost, we have Daniel Hansen, author of the Tricksters War series and several short stories. Welcome to the show, Dan. Well, thank you. Glad to be on. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your books. Well, my name is Daniel Hansen. I'm a consultant for tribal casinos. I'm an enrolled member of the village of Kotzebue and a Nana shareholder. I wrote Monsters Children and its sequel, Raven Spear, in the Trickster's War series. I'm working on the third book. I've also wrote a collection of short stories titled This Life Told by an Old Indian, which is a lot more of the mystical realism vein. And I'm currently, as you mentioned, working on more short stories centering around ideas around decolonialism. Did you have any specific inspirations for your Trickster's War series? Yeah, so growing up, I loved the old stories. I'd spend my days reading Stephen King and Octavia Butler and um, a lot of these different sci-fi speculative fiction authors. But at night, you know, we'd hear trickster stories and we'd hear the old stories and it all kind of mixed together in my mind with that and then also comic. And I really pulled a lot in on comics, especially like the X-Men and other groups, uh, loving the villains, loving how that kind of team dynamic works. I really wanted to try to recreate that with how they, you know, the different players interact and they have the mentor figure who's teaching them things, but also bring in some of those trickster ideas where the, the good guys or the tricksters not always good or bad. They're there. And they're just kind of trying to live their life and get their own what they want out of it. Yeah, you mentioned you're enrolled in the village of... Kotzebue. How did that influence your stories a lot? Like, I know with the tricksters tales, but anything else? Yeah, like I brought in the Raven and just the other stories, a lot of uh, ideas around not only freedom. Freedom's a big thing in the stories, mass, how they deal with people back and forth. Um, just growing up in that culture is a big part of uh, the culture that came out in the book, just because I grew up, well, on the Coeur d'Alene Indian Reservation, which is North Idaho, and Kotzebue's in Alaska. But both cultures, I learned, you know, just storytelling such a big part of it, and a big part of how you teach, how you entertain, it's a, just a huge part of life. And that was something I really, you know, dug into to try to uh, express in a more modern way. Yeah, and then you said you've written that collection of short stories. How deeply does your life, like having those experiences, mirror in that specific short story series? So in the series of short stories, the book, they're all interconnected, the stories, and they're actually stories from either my life or people who I know who've told me their stories. And so it's very much in the magical realism vein in that it's, it's kids growing up on the reservation, much in the way that I did, going through the things they go through, such as, you know, being mixed race, being uh, surrounded by a white culture while still on a predominantly native reservation, 
uh, dealing with the people you deal with, their, you know, drug use, uh, the way that the old stories, like the Goat Man is one of the big stories in the collection and the stories of the Goat Man being around and how he interacted with people. These weren't imaginary or fairy tales to us. These were, I mean, I know people who have met him, you know, in the book, I talk about the time that I believe I did. These are things that, you know, you live with throughout the whole time you're there. And, you know, just trying to bring that out. Uh, to me, it's realism, but I know that the way it's usually classified is more of a magical realism, but it's living in that culture and living with those those stories as if they're part of your everyday life, because they are. Yeah, because most of your work center on the indigenous world, so that's that definitely comes through in your work. You also have that blog, so... You have a blog called Our Orchard. Can you tell us a little bit about that and like what you like focus on in that blog? Um, well, the blog's really kind of a shotgun approach. Um, I started it after I had gotten um, Monsters Children out and everybody kept telling me authors need a blog, authors need a blog. So I sat down to do a <laughs> blog and I realized, well, I don't know what I have to say that really entertains people. So what I really started to do was to write about kind of how I came up with my ideas for Monsters Children, how I come up with other short stories. I've added other short stories onto the blog and kind of let people watch my growth as a writer and discuss things I learn. I'm a big part of uh, Native Twitter, which is a part of indigenous Twitter that's out there. A lot of people, it's a great place if everybody wants to go look. But I learned a lot of things from there that I, you know, kind of try to deal with and talk about. But the the irony of all that is, is all my stories and everything else, the thing that gets the most hits is every once in a while I'll do recipes where something like how to make fry bread or how to make kimchi or how to make pie and write about what I learned, you know, as I've learned to make these things. And that always gets the most hit. So I don't know. <laughs> what was the what was the last recipe you did? Uh, the last recipe I did was, I believe... Um, zucchini noodles, zucchini noodles, fettuccine, all from scratch, and cauliflower rice. That sounds delicious. It is. They're both really, really delicious. Uh, now that I'm recipe. salivating, I'm sure our listeners are too. <laughs> so you seem like a like a pretty busy person with like your consultancy job and all of this writing. How do you fit in your time to write? So consulting, you really work when the client needs you and I'll take time off whenever I want. I just did a trip to hit a bunch of different parks, uh, national parks and hike them. Um, so kind of, you know, I live in and out of hotels. So when I get back to the hotel at night, I just start writing. Um, I try to do it either in the morning or at night. And usually it ends up being at night and I just fit it in. Uh, you have to, and that's one of the reasons the blog, sometimes I'll go a month without updating the blog because of that because i'll just get busy with a project or a specific casino or tribe that has you know a lot more work than i would normally be able to do but like my nano what is it nano nemo i don't know how to pronounce it so that's how i actually did the this life told by an old indian and it was literally just i'd get off work i was at the hotel in the casino so as soon as i got off work i'd come up straight up to my hotel room and just write yeah, NaNoWriMo, we did a podcast about it earlier. That's a really tough thing. How did you feel during that? I did not feel great. I mean, I 
I was debating whether or not to do it on and off. And then about November 3rd, I just decided I'm going to do it. And I started it. And then I was about five days, no, 10 days out. And I realized I had about 12,000 more words to go. And I went back and I was like, I don't, I'm not going to be able to do, finish it. And I ended up one night writing, um, if you ever read the collection, in the collection, every story started off with this uh, interlacing story about a guy I call Uncle, who's actually telling the story. And I just wrote all of those parts, and they took me well over the line. I think I finished at 56,000 words. Nice. Yeah. And then, of course, you have to edit it, and you know, because you don't want to just put out there what you wrote in a month because it's never going to be as good as what it should be. How do you find that your novels like kind of differentiate from your short stories? Um, well, my novels are mainly in the Trickster's War series, and I've tried to start a few others, and all of them are a bit more fantasy or sci-fi, I'd like to say. And the short stories are... It's an easier place to kind of put ideas I'm still working on. I just did one and put it on my blog, which is about... It's a short story about a world where colonialization never happened. From a native perspective, a guy from Alaska is down at a kind of a conference-type situation where there's other leaders in the world. And so you can kind of explore those ideas without having to have a full-blown, this is the end. Because in my novels, I've always enjoyed characters, and I've always enjoyed a character says something in one book that's a kind of a throwaway line that three or four books, either in the series or disconnected, but still kind of in the same world, that line suddenly has a deeper and different meaning. And so in my my novels, I very much have mapped out. I mean, the Trickster's War series I have mapped out to the end, which is, I wanted to say, five books. And I've got the outlines. I've got all the different characterizations, how things are going to go. And in short stories, you're able to just kind of freely sit down and say, this is kind of the idea I want to work with. I'm going to work with it. And you get to just kind of lay it out there on the page a lot better for me yeah i really enjoy short stories and i'm hoping to do more of them uh they're kind of because i've you know time limitations i've really put off the third book in the tricksters war series just because i'm doing so much with short stories but you know most authors i'm sure this is true for most of the authors that you just have more ideas you can you can really use and short stories are a way to kind of start to explore some of those without fully committing. And then once you kind of get it out on page and you like it and you start getting into the editing process, you can start to more commit to it and decide if you want to do something longer with it. Yeah, that's great. Tell everyone where they can find you and your work. Okay. I on Twitter at Dan Dan Hansen, H-A-N-S-E-N. I'm pretty active on there, like I said, on native Twitter. And then my blog is rorchard.co, and that's where you can find me. Where are your books? Oh, my books are on Amazon, and most bookstores can order them. My short story collection is also on there, and my both the two Trickster's War series books, Monster's Children and The Raven's Spear. 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Dan, for coming on the show today. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. And with that awkward ending and scene. Welcome to the Skipping and Fandy Show. I'm Paul, and today on Signal Boost, we have Alana C. Meyer here to talk about Fire Dance. Say hello, Alana. Hi! Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. As listeners might have read my previous review of of your first book, of Last Song Before Night, a few years ago of SF Signal, I've been a fan of your work for some time, and I was very excited to be able to uh, get a copy of Fire Dance, which is now out from Tor Books, the second book set in this world. But you don't say it's precisely a sequel. It's just set in the same world when it has a major, as the major protagonist from Last Song Before Night in the book. Yes. Well, I, I guess I'm defining sequel as something that, um, you need to have read the first book in order to understand the second. And so because Last Song Before Night was a standalone novel, um, Firedance has its own beginning. And I did my best to make sure that it would be accessible to new readers if he, they happened to pick that up first. That's fair. I mean, we, we not only have Lynn, we have new point of view characters and most of the, half of the action takes place completely outside of the bounds of the previous novel. So why don't we circle back and start for a general perspective and tell the readers about the world that you've created in these, in these two books and especially in Fire Dance. Sure. In Last Song Before Night, um, it was set in a world where poets had political power um, and had once had um, enchantments that were lost. Um, in Fire Dance, um, poets not only have political power, but they also have access to more supernatural powers. Um, and of course, that can be a double-edged sword. And so those... Those are the kinds of consequences that are explored in Fire Dance. And indeed, so in the, in the first novel, Lynn goes through a goes through trials and tribulations to be, become court poet, and in so doing, deals with the ramifications of unleashing magic on the world. And in this novel, she finds out something rather tragic about the events of the first novel and puts her under a time limit. Yes. Um. I, I think it's not such a bad spoiler because it happens fairly early in the novel where she discovers that um, an enchantment um, performed in the previous novel, um, basically uh, something she did to, as a sacrifice for a friend, um, was going to be ultimately the death of her. And And so she's willing to try to make something of the shortened version of her life. And so she winds up traveling to a completely different part of the world and some new vices and new political problems for Lynn. Yes, uh, and uh, what seems like uh, a political crisis that's isolated to that land turns out to have ramifications um, for her own as well. I mean, you have some really gorgeous places and vistas as 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 seen on the cover of the novel when we finally actually get to the tower in the novel it's like oh my god it's the top it's the cover <laughs> i know the cover is really quite accurate in a stylized kind of way 
It's a Stephen Martinelli cover, as I recall. Yes, it is. Uh, he did a wonderful job. So Firedance is not only Lynn's story, it's also Julian's story. So in in Last Song Before Night, you did have the young Lynn trying to break into the Academy, as it were, and break into the big time. And Julian kind of follows that path, but not the same. So why don't you talk? tell us a little bit about Julian, how her story mirrors and reflects Lynn's previous story. Oh, that's such an interesting question. Uh, there's definitely similarities in Julian in terms of um, her curiosity, um, her love of the art, which has drawn her to it, um, and then ultimately the way she is subtly but effectively frozen out at the Academy because they're just not ready to accept that women can be poets. Um, and, you know, I think what makes Julian different, uh, from Lynn is just a very different personality, different backgrounds in life. You know, Lynn comes from a place of genuine trauma and Julian is more, um, she's more innocent. She's really a child. And part of fire dance is about her having to deal with growing up. Yeah, I, I did definitely get a sense of a coming-of-age story out of Julian. Lynn's, Lynn's past is traumatic and, how can I put this, um, slightly more patrician than Julian's is because, you know, Lynn, Lynn comes from a relatively powerful, noble family and the consequences of that kind of run through last song before night where Julian is much more in raw talent and innocence and trying to b- break the glass ceiling, as it were. Yes, she's been sheltered. Um, she doesn't have the same, um, sophistication and awareness of political realities that Lynn has. Um, and of course, and that presents a challenge that shelteredness is an obstacle. It's not a good thing. It ends up preventing her from, you know, understanding how to grapple with certain situations. Indeed, it does. It does get her get her into um, all all sorts of uh, mischief, as it were, as as the plot unfolds, and she's rather over her head. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the magic in in this book. In in the first book, the 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 story is almost like a the ma- the magic will return sort of tale because th- this land has Ivar has no magic, and Lynn's actions change that and. So in this book, starting off at the Academy, you, you have to depict a world where magic has come back into a land that hasn't had it in a while. And I wonder if you want to talk about how do you write a changed landscape like that? Because the Academy is going through a lot of trauma as a result of this magic having come back. Yes. Um, very, very interesting question with a lot of possibilities for discussion, but I'll keep it short. Um, you know, I one of the things that I realized um, right away was that, you know, the unfortunate thing is that power corrupts. And one of the first things that's going to happen um, in a world where a new power emerges is that people who are not so great will try to exploit it or um, use it for their political gain um, and worse. Um you know, just as, uh, you know, whenever we get our hands on a new kind of weapon, uh, it's similar to that. Um, and so while there might be, um, 
positive elements to it, just as with, you know, war technology, we often have medical technology coming out alongside that. Um, it, with this kind of magic, it's the same. Um, it ends up being something that, um, can be exploited, um, and is dangerous in the wrong hands. And there's, there are social differences. I'm thinking particularly of the bonfire scene, which I'm speaking very elliptically of so as not to spoil too much for the readers. <laughs> oh, yes. Right. So certain rituals, which in the past would have been symbolic, um, suddenly have real power, real ramifications. And of course, um, that has a tremendous impact on what happens to the characters. I was getting a bit of a Wicker Man vibe out of that. I don't know if it was just me or whether you intended that. I'm not familiar with that. Okay, then it was just me. Honestly, I just did a lot of uh, research into various um, spring rituals with the, of the Celts and came up with my own version uh, for this book. That's that's really interesting. I was like, oh, she she must have seen the Wicked Man at some point. No, you 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 went into <laughs> the same tap roots that that movie comes out of and and created created your own ideas on on that and the unfortunate consequences of throwing magic into a, a society that doesn't really know what to do with it because it hasn't had it in so long. Right, right. And that's a contrast to um, Kahishi, where they've had it for hundreds of years, and so it's become this refined art that's integrated into court life. Yep. So, yeah, I, I did want to ask about Ka Kahishi. I wasn't quite sure how to pronounce that. Thank you. Um, And developing a society very different with... Um, with mages trying to take political power, so what sort of models and ideas did you come to build build another land on to sit alongside Ivar? Well, to talk about that, I'll I'll need to talk a little bit about how Firedance came about because initially, Last Song Before Night was supposed to be a standalone, um, but during the time that um, the manuscript was just sitting, I didn't even have an agent yet. Um, we went to Spain, um, to Seville and Cordoba, and it really got me fascinated with that region, and I started to do some reading. And in the course of that, realized I had an idea for a sequel. And so when the first book was picked up um, by Tor, um, I told them I had ideas for a sequel, and it became a three-book deal. Um, so I immersed myself in research of uh, medieval Andalusia ended up expanding on that um, to the medieval Arab world in general, Arabian Nights. Uh, I'm sorry, the Thousand and One Nights is really the correct title. I went back to primary sources as much as possible and the poetry of medieval Andalusia. And I basically just immersed myself in all that. And out came this particular milieu uh, from that. I did think I was thinking North Africa, Morocco, and I could I could see Spain. Yeah, not far. There, there's certainly, you know, I didn't try for historical accuracy, so there are elements from from various places. You're not quite doing the guy Gabriel K, where it looks very, very much like a particular time and place with with uh, just some changes. You just took elements and ideas to make it your own land. Yes, uh, it's. I was not trying to be historically accurate in any way. 
That, that's fantastic. But you you mentioned poetry before, and one of the things that draws me to your work, and I think is one of the best things about your work, is your use of language and poetry and music and but in work. And I was curious where that all comes from and how how and why you channel that into your novels. You do it so so very well. I'm wondering what what, what the wellsprings of that is. Well, thank you. Uh, from a very early age, um, I. I think it was I was a teenager when I first read Ursula Le Guin's essay uh, from Elfland to Poughkeepsie, um, which is collected in the language of the night. It's a wonderful essay. Um, and she makes such a compelling case for the importance of language in fantasy. Uh, I read that when I was 17 and I reread it many times since. And it just really stuck with me and it convinced me that uh, when we write fantasy, because we're building a world, um, the language we use is so important. And of course, as someone who's just drawn to the art of words in general, as a writer, um, I'm really passionate about that on that level too. Oh, 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 indeed. I mean, there's definite a definite love of language that you that comes across in how the characters speak and. The, the the bits of song and poetry that you insert into the novel that's 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 a tremendous amount of additional iceberg under the iceberg sort of level of creation that you bring to the world. Well, thank you for noticing that. So, is there anything else you would like to tell your readers about Fire Dance and about your work that we haven't already uh, covered in this uh, pell mell uh, travel through uh, your world? Well, let me think. Well, I'll just, you know, say, you know, for anyone who is not familiar with, uh, with fire dance, um, it, it is kind of an amalgam of Celtic myth and medieval Andalusia and Middle Eastern magic and flamenco. Um, and of course, poetry is central, is central to the whole thing. And it's out now. It, it is out now, readers. You can, you can get it in ebook, e- ebooks and, and hard books at all, all the usable places. And it, it, it is absolutely wonderful. I think it's better than last song before night. I think you're getting better as a writer. So you're going to write a third book in this world. I understand. Yes. I'm working on the third book now. I'm very excited about it. Excellent. I, I look forward. I look forward to reading that. Oh, thank you, Paul. So where can listeners find you online? Okay, there there is uh, my website, ilanacmeyer.com, um, and I also have a Twitter handle, ilanact, um, and I'm also on Facebook. Um, most of my posts are public, and it's easy to follow me there. Thank you very much for being on Signal, Signal Boost for Skipping Fancy tonight. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you. And with that, listeners, stay frosty and see Thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to support us, you can find us at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so at our email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com, on Twitter at skiffyandfanty, and on Facebook at the Skiffy and Fanty Show. Our intro and outro music comes from Dimension by Creo. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org. Music